0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today, March 17th, 2016 marks the first day of what will become my 12th year of producing these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. And after we listen to today's talk, I'll be back and uh, add a few more comments about that. But first, we are going to return to the May of 1991 weekend workshop where Terence McKenna focused on alchemy and the Hermetic tradition. As you'll soon discover, Much of the literature from that tradition is, uh, well, at least to me, really obscure. But if you are truly interested in the subject, I can now second Terence's earlier recommendation of the novel The Chemical Wedding by Lindsay Clark. While there are a few brief quotes in it that uh, come directly from the Corpus Hermetica, For the most part, the novel brings some of the ideas that may be found in ancient alchemical texts into a more modern and more easily understandable form than uh, what you'll soon hear Terence read from. And in case you think that alchemy is a new interest of mine, let me read for you the opening paragraph of my novel, The Genesis Generation. Prologue, The Lost Book of Toth Myths and legends only spare the non-believers. Johannes' hands trembled as he carefully closed the old leather pouch containing the parchment pages that had been among his grandfather's most precious possessions, having been left to him by Giordano Bruno more than a half a century earlier. Although the bulk of the alchemical library of Rudolf II had previously been shipped to Vienna, it was the Winter King, young Frederick himself, Who had seen to it that this magical treatise remained well hidden in Prague Castle, just before he fled to Holland along with his young bride. That was around the same time that the pilgrims were stepping out of their boats at Plymouth Rock. A generation later, Swedish troops were storming the castle gates, and old Johans knew that the time had come for the mysterious leather pouch to be hidden in plain sight, so that it would not be destroyed in the looting that was sure to follow. But enough of my own fictional fantasies. Now let's take a deeper peek into this mysterious arena by rejoining Terence McKenna's 1991 workshop on the Hermetic Tradition.
1: So what I thought I would do is, um, in a highly chaotic fashion read you some of these, some of this alchemical literature. Now, the big bring down about alchemical literature is that uh, apparently the muse didn't always smile on the alchemist. And some of this poetry is pretty tormented stuff. Uh, Why this is, who can say... um, but uh, let, let's try one here and see if you can bear with it. Also, my middle English is not as good as it uh, it might be. This is a short one and typical, and you will see why the alchemists were charged with unbearable obscurity and, uh, and uh, prolex prose. This poem is called A Description of the Stone. Though Daphne fly from Phoebus bright, Yet shall they both be one, and if you understand this right, you have our hidden stone. For Daphne, she is fair and white, but volatile is she. Phoebus, a fixed god of might, and red of, as blood, is he. Daphne is a water nymph, and hath of moisture store, which Phoebus doth confine and heat, and dries her very shore they being dried into one of crystal flood must drink till they be brought to a white stone which washed with virgin's milk so long until they flow as wax and no fume you can see. Then have you all you need to ask. Praise God and thankful be. This is a recipe for the production of uh, the philosopher's stone. And the author, I'm sure, felt that he'd spoken as clearly as he'd dare speak. And yet, you know, making something of this is no easy task. This is from the Teatrium Chemicum Britannicum and uh, the late phase of, uh, of alchemy. Here's another one. The world is a maze, and what you why? Forsooth of late a great man did die... And as he lay a dying in his bed, these words in secret to his son, he said, My son, quoth he, tis good for thee I die, for thou shalt much the better be thereby. And when thou seest that life hath me bereft, take what thou findest. And where I have it left, thou dost not know, nor what my riches be. All which I will declare, give ear to me. An earth I had all venom to expel, and that I cast into a mighty well. A water eck to cleanse what was amiss, I threw into the earth, and there it is. My silver all into the sea I cast, my gold into the air, and at the last into the fire, for fear it should be found, I threw a stone worth 40,000 pound, Which stone was given me by a mighty king, who bade me wear it in a fourfold ring. Quoth he, This stone is by that ring found out, if wisely thou canst turn this ring about. For every hope contrary is to other, yet all agree, and of the stone is mother. So now, my son, I will declare a wonder that when I die, this ring must break asunder. The king said so, but when he said withal, although the ring be broke in pieces small, an easy fire shall soon it close again. Who this can do, he need not work in vain, till this my hidden treasure be found out. When I am dead, my spirit shall walk about. Make him to bring your fire from the grave, and stay with him till you my riches have. These words a worldly man did chance to hear, Who daily watched the spirit, but nay the near, and yet it meets with him and every one, yet tells him not where is the hidden stone. Now this stuff is obscure, it's deliberately obscure, it was obscure to its contemporaries, and the whole effort became one of collecting this kind of material and finding it out. And you have to understand, this was all circulating in manuscript. Very little of this was printed. The Teatrium Chemicum Britannicum uh, was not printed uh, until uh, 1652. So this was a world without vehicular transportation other than the horse and carriage. And uh, these people were paranoid of being discovered and persecuted for wizardry and witchcraft by the church. So each alchemist working in secret with a limited number of texts, with a local control language, created this vast conceptual patchwork of ideas. And... um, uh, this is in large measure responsible for the obscurity of what is said then another factor which impinges on this and further complicates the matter is that um, the, the name of the game was projection of the contents of the imagination onto physical processes so uh Taking red cinnabar, which I mentioned last night, and heating it in a furnace until it sweats mercury, Uh, for one alchemist, this is the incineration of the red salamander and the collection of our mercurius in the great pelican. They named their chemical apparatus after animals and gods, and so the pelican is a standard distillation apparatus, basically a condenser on top of something which is boiled. And, uh, and then these materials would be collected, ground, powdered, Refired, mixed with other materials, refired again. And in the process, uh, these people were, we call it, I mean, it's such a weak term, the projection of the intellect into this dimension. They were living in a waking dream. And many of the recipes are designed to wipe out the boundaries between waking and sleeping. Remember I talked about the river of mercury that runs between the yin and yang? Uh, Many of the alchemical processes were of 40 days duration. Well, you can imagine a hermit fearing discovery by the church trying to keep his fires not too hot, not too cold, working day after day, night after night. Uh, Eventually... All boundaries dissolve and you're just living in a pure world of intellectual projection. And then in the swirling of the alembic, in the in the chemical processes going on in the retort, you begin to be able to project your conscious onto this. It's what we call visualization, but for us it's a very it's a kind of a weak term because we don't we are never really able to accept in the psychedelic state to transcend the belief in the inner world and the outer world being somehow separate. So for us, it's always separate from us. But they were able to wipe out that boundary. Well, then what they saw in their swirling retorts and alembics was not uh, a carbonization calcination condensation of various molecular weights of liquids and oils out but rather the birth of the red lion the coming of the eagle uh, the appearance of the smaragdine stone they had hundreds and hundreds of these words and I didn't bring any with me but much alchemical literature are dictionaries uh, Mart- Martinus Rulandus's Alchemical Dictionary is a huge book of uh, words with special meanings in the alchemical context. And uh, the- these, okay, so why? Why do this? And what happens when you do it? Well, no matter what alchemist you're reading, there's always an agreement that there are stages in the great work. Stages in the opus, as they called it. And you can't get any agreement on in what order these stages come. But roughly, it's something like this. Most agree that it begins in the negredo, the blackening, our crow, the saturnine world of what we would call manic depression, despair. And and that our chaos, a chaotic, near-psychotic state of unbounded hopelessness. And in and that is the precondition, then, for the alchemical work, though the stages of the opus never occur in order. I had a dream last night that was, I think, triggered by an illustration in Fabricius that I'll show you tonight, But uh, it was a classical alchemical dream. It was that I was at a country fair and its antiquity was indicated by the fact that it was happening on the schoolyard of my childhood. And as I moved among the participants of this country fair, I began to notice that they were freaky I mean, there were people with withered arms and one side of their face slid down and so forth and so on. The whole thing began to drift toward nightmare. And uh, Richard Hermes Bird appeared in my dream as my uh, alchemical compadre. And and at one point, a a black woman, Perfect symbolism for the Negredo. A black woman with three withered arms and, and six or seven breasts slid herself sideways in front of me. And it was at that point that I went and found Richard and said, I think we better get out of here. <laughs> uh, well, now, an alchemist would greet a dream like this with great uh, uh, anticipation and joy, and would understand that this sets the stage now for the next movement forward. Well, then accounts differ, and uh, those of you who really want to get into this, I I recommend you read um, Mysterium Conjunctionis* by Jung, The Mysterious Conjunction. Uh, and he discusses the negro, uh, the negredo, in great detail. Another symbol for the negredo is the senex, the old man, because the old man is just short of death, and that's the state that the negredo makes you feel. Well, then you must take this raw, chaotic, unformed material often compared to feces compared to corruption compared to the contents of of an opened grave and you must cook it in the alchemical fires of contemplation prayer and ascetic self-control and then you will move through a series of stages that are associated with colors Uh, there is the rubedo the reddening there is the citrinitas, the yellowing. There is uh, the veriditas, the greening. And the order in which these occurs differs according to who you follow. But then there is closure at the end of the process. Most alchemists, although certainly not all, agree that the higher state is the albedo, the whitening, the purificatio, right so at each stage there are substages of dissolution dissolutio et coagulatio and there's one alchemical uh, aphorism that says dissolutio et coagulatio know this and this is all you need to know and and so it's a it's a melting and a recasting and a purifying of psychic contents. Well, then uh, a whole... uh, So finally you reach the albedo, the whitening, the highest stage, the stage of great purity. But remember how I said last night that Mercury was always the metaphor for mind in alchemy or one of the metaphors for mind in alchemy? And I talked about its mutability and its ability to take the shape of its container, and when you shatter it, it then splits into many reflections. So once you move into the domain of the albedo, the whitening, then a whole new problem arises for the alchemist, and this is the problem of the fixing of the stone. Somehow the mutability of mercury must be overcome and it must be crystallized. It must be fixed so that it doesn't get away from you, so that it doesn't slip through your fingers. To achieve our mercury is nothing unless you have the secret of the coagulatio. And so then there's a huge amount of effort devoted to this. Well, what is being described is what Jungians call the individuation process, a dissolving of the boundaries of the ego and allowing of the chaotic material of the unconscious to pour forth Where it can be inspected by consciousness and we'll see tonight when we look at this art that these images are full of ravening beasts, incestuous mother-son pairs, incestuous brother-sister pairs, hermaphrodites, um, all taboos. Are broken. This stuff just boils up from the unconscious, then is sublimed through these processes, and then is somehow fixed. And this fixing then is the culmination of alchemy. And if you can bring off this trick, then you possess our. Stone, the philosopher's stone, the lapis, the sophic hydrolith of the wise, Arrhenius Philolithes calls it. And there were hundreds of, of uh, control words for naming the secret difficult to obtain alchemical gold, in short. This is what we're after. And if you possess it, nothing else is worth anything because it is psychic completion. Peace of mind. Jung called it the self. It's the self that we are trying to uh, recover. And remember, we talked about the Gnostic myths of the, of the light trapped in matter. Well, this is the lumine de lumine. This is the light of light, the lux natura, the light drawn out of nature and condensed into a fixed form, which then becomes the universal panacea. And I'm using as many of these alchemical terms as I can draw out of my memory to give you a feeling for it. This is the universal medicine. It cures all ills, Uh, you know. It brings you riches, fame, wealth, self-respect. It's the answer. It's what everyone is looking for and no one can find, you see. So this just became a consuming passion of the 15th and 16th century uh, mind. And they thought they were on the brink of it. And along the way, they were discovering stuff like distilled alcohol, phosphorus, gunpowder, all of these things were coming out of the alchemical laboratories, but that was not it. You see, they kept driving themselves onward because they knew that the real that this was not the real thing and they were pursuing uh, the real thing. Well, then, uh, for some people, it became then reassociated with this notion of the utopia that I mentioned uh, This morning, in the passage that I read about the city of Hermes Trismegistus, and they began to see it's almost like the crisis which overcame Buddhism. It must be an archetypal. And notice how rarely we've used that word here. It must be almost an archetypal stage in human thought. You know, Theravadan Buddhism stressed individual redemption through meditation on emptiness. And then, with the great reforms of Nagarjuna, the idea of bodhisattvic compassion was introduced. And that carries with it a political freight, an obligation to society and mankind... And so as the 15th and 16th century progressed, there began to be this awareness that what was wanted was not for an alchemist to break through to uh, his own personal salvation, but somehow to create an alchemical world. And you get then the uh, notion of the multiplicatio. The, the idea that the stone once created will replicate itself and be able to change base matter into itself in almost like a virus spreading through the ontological structure of matter itself and the world will be um, reborn. And uh, this idea then... Uh, what was happening was these alchemists were getting bolder, and printing was invented in Mainz near Frankfurt in 1540. The distribution of these alchemical books was changing the character of alchemy. It was no more the solitary hermit. Uh, working away in his cave or mountaintop far away from the minions of the church these alchemists began to dream of banding together, of forming societies of uh, creating brotherhoods that were united in the sharing of their knowledge and their purpose and uh, this brings us to uh, the, the curious Episode in history called the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, and Dame Frances Yates once again got there first, and she wrote a book called The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, which traces um, the the history of these alchemical brotherhoods and reveals to us what they were really about, and what they were about was this dream of somehow taking the Philosopher's Stone and the power, the immortality, the insight that it would bring and making it a general utility of mankind. And in the, you know, one way of looking at modernity, I mean, I have a friend who claims that the the summoning of the Holy Spirit into matter can be seen as... Uh, the creation of the modern world of electrical energy that people like uh, Helmholtz and Faraday uh, were completing the alchemical work. It's very hard for us to realize how mysterious the electromagnetic field seemed to the 19th century. The 19th century had entirely uh, imbued itself with the spirit of democracy and atomism translated through Newtonian physics and they believed you know that everything was little balls of, of hard matter winging through space well when uh, Helmholtz and Faraday and these people began to talk about action at a distance and generating the electromagnetic field and trapping um Lightning in Leiden jars and running it through wires. Uh, What could this be but Pneuma? What could this be but the trapping of Spiritus? What could it be but the literal descent of the Holy Ghost into history? And, you know, give it a moment's thought. For thousands of years, electricity was something that you saw when you took an amber rod and a piece of cat fur. And went into a darkened room and stroked the cat fur. And then when you would bring the amber rod close to the cat fur, you would see the crackle of static electricity through the cat fur. For thousands of years, that's what electricity was. Who would dream that you could light cities? that you could smelt metals, that you could illuminate the earth with this energy. And yet, you know, from the 1850s to the present, this was done. It's almost a literalizing, the final literalizing of the alchemical dream. But to go back now, I digress, I fear. Uh, Let's go back to the climate of the 1580s and the central culprit here And to my mind, a giant figure casting an enormous shadow over the landscape of alchemy and modern science is uh, the Englishman John Dee. John Dee united in himself the complete spirit of the medieval magus and the complete spirit of the modern scientist he invented the navigational instruments that allowed the conquest of the round earth when Francis Drake sailed up the coast of California he had navigational instruments that were top secret the French, the Spanish must be kept away from this stuff and these were navigational instruments created by John Dee that allowed him to locate himself anywhere on the globe but John Dee was a man who, uh, on a late summer evening in Mortlake, in his house in Mortlake outside London, uh, the angel Gabriel descended into his garden and gave him uh, what he called the showstone, S H E W in Old English, the showstone. And the showstone exists to this day. You can see it in the British Museum. And what's amazing about it is it's a, uh, it's a uh, piece of uh, polished obsidian. It's an Aztec mirror, is what it is. And, the, you know, there was a ruler of the Aztecs named Smoky Mirror. How John Dee got this thing, we cannot even imagine. I mean, he says he got it from an angel. N- nobody can really nay say that. However, I suspect that Cortez, on his first return to Spain from the New World, he brought a number of objects with him that he had collected in central Mexico. And somehow John Dee got his hands on this thing and it was for him a, um, a television screen into the Logos and he used it over a number of years to uh, direct the foreign policy of England he was uh, the confidant of Queen Elizabeth I and he also was the most accomplished astrologer In Europe, and he used his ability to cast horoscopes as an entree into all the great houses of Europe, the kings and nobles of Europe. Well, he was functioning as an intelligence agent, he was a spy for the British crown, uh, insinuating himself into these various courtly scenes and then writing back to Elizabeth in ciphers ciphers that had previously only been used for magical purposes. He was sending back data on the strength of military garrisons and the placement of fortifications and this sort of thing. And uh, But th- this was what he was doing in the 1580s. He kept the show stone for a number of years and he didn't seem to be able to make much, pra- much progress with it. He had other methods, too. He had wax tables and sigils. And, but finally into his life came a very mysterious character named Edward Kelly. And some accounts say that Edward Kelly had no ears which indicates that he had had his ears removed for being a charlatan and a Montebank. This was a common punishment in the provinces of England. So Edward Kelly was a very dubious character, I think. Uh, For one one strong piece of evidence that he was a shady character was John Dee was married to a much younger woman named Anne Dee who by all accounts was quite a beauty. And uh, after gaining... D's confidence as a scryer, uh, uh, the person who could look into the showstone and lay out these scenarios that the angels and the the entities coming and going in the showstone were putting forth. Uh, Kelly revealed to D that the angels had instructed him to uh, hit the hay with Anne, (laughs) and this was a great crisis in their relationship. However, uh, according to D's diary, and so it was done. We read, so you know, hanky panky didn't begin with the golden dawn. Uh, believe me. In 1582, Anne D, John D, and Edward Kelly set out for Bohemia, and Rudolf, the Mad King of Bohemia, held sway at that time. Now, this is another one of these bizarre figures in the whole story of this. Rudolf collected dwarfs, he collected giants, he had what was called a Wunderkammer, a wonder cabinet. You see, before Linnaeus, before modern scientific classification, these great patrons of the arts and natural sciences, they would just collect weird stuff. And that was all you could say about it. I mean, it was rhinoceros horns, fossil ammonites, uh, broken pieces of statues from antiquity, giant insects from southern India, seashells. All this stuff would just be thrown together in these wunderkammer, these wonder cabinets. And uh, uh, Rudolph was a great patron of the arts. Well, uh, Kelly sent the word that he and Dee had perfected the alchemical process and uh, Rudolf immediately paid their way to Prague and uh, patronized them very lavishly over a number of months but then uh, they didn't seem to be coming through and he rented, he ordered a castle put at their disposal in Bohemia and they still weren't able to come through. The Vonich Manuscript figures in here too because Ke- Kelly's entree to D was that he had a manuscript in uh, an unknown language and I believe that this probably was the Vonich Manuscript. The Vonich Manuscript turns up in the estate of Rudolph and the very month that he paid 14,000 gold ducats for it to persons unknown, Dee, who was always writing back to the Elizabethan court, hounding them to send money, entered in his account book that they received 14,000 gold ducats from an unknown source. Uh, Dee was able to talk himself out of this alchemical imprisonment, but not before he had written a book called The Hieroglyphic Monad. Now, you have to understand the importance of this. As late as the 1920s in England, in in the better schools of England like Eton, uh, it, when you studied geometry, you studied Euclid's works and uh, Euclid's. Geometry was always preceded by Dee's preface to Euclid until the 1920s. Every English schoolchild studied this. He was a master mathematician as well as all these other things. This was how he was able to uh, uh, produce this, uh, these navigation instruments. So Dee, while imprisoned in Bohemia, wrote a book called The Hieroglyphic Monad in which he proposed to prove through a a series of occult theorems that a certain diagram which unfortunately I don't I didn't bring the hieroglyphic monad but it's basically the symbol of you know the symbol of mercury which looks like the symbol for female but you put horns on it and then there were some adumbrations to that by a series of theorems he built up this hieroglyphic monad and he initiated Uh, a couple of young men named Johann Andrei and Michael Meyer into the mysteries of the hieroglyphic monad. Well, then he was able to get out of Bohemia, and he went back to England. Kelly, who had made much more extravagant claims, Rudolph kept at work on the alchemical opus and Kelly became more and more desperate to escape and one night in 1587 he crept out on the parapet of this bohemian castle and uh, a roof tile slipped beneath his feet and he fell to his death and became, so far as I can tell, alchemy's only true martyr. <laughs> well, Dee returned to England, and uh, he was now very old, and uh, he died at Mortlake in 1606. Elizabeth died in 1604. Shakespeare was happening, Sir Philip Sidney was happening through this period. John Dee reputedly had over 6,000 books in his library. He had more books than any man in England. He had books, we have a partial catalog of his library. He had books that do not exist now. He had Roger Bacon manuscripts because you see when Henry VIII kicked the Catholic Church out of England, the Northumbrian monasteries were looted by the Earl of Northumberland and, uh, and basically Dee was allowed to pick over the loot from these monasteries and there were Roger Bacon manuscripts which perished when Dee's library was burned by an angry mob when he, while he was on the continent because he was suspected of being a wizard. He was the model for Faust uh, in the later recensions of Faust. And whenever you see an old man with a white beard and a pointed cap, this image is really referent to Dee. Well, Elizabeth died in 1604, I believe, and um, James the I became King of England. And James was a peculiar character the wags of the time liked to say Elizabeth was king and now James is queen uh, and not only that <laughs> he, uh, he hated occultism he had no patience with the whole magical court that Elizabeth had assembled around herself well now meanwhile in 1606 A very mysterious document began to circulate in in Europe and in England called the Fama. This is the first word of a string of Latin words, the Fama, and two years later the Confessio. And what these were, were announcements that an alchemical brotherhood was uh, seeking recruits. It was, these are the primary documents of Rosicrucianism. Now, Rosicrucianism uh, was based on a fiction and a fictional person, Christian Rosencrantz, who was imagined to have lived uh, almost 200 years earlier in the 1540s and been a great alchemist. And it was claimed that his tomb had been recently opened and that there were books inside it which set the stage for the alchemical revolution of the world notice how this occult mind always tries to reach back in time to give itself uh, validity so uh, and Christian Rosencrantz was claimed to be the author of a series of books uh, uh, the chief of which is called The Chemical Wedding what this was all about I believe, and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment makes it fairly clear, was D during the period when he had been in Bohemia, had set out uh, to lay the groundwork for an alchemical revolution in Central Europe. And he had made Johann Andrei and Michael Meyer his agents in this plot. And it was a plot A plot to meddle with European history and to turn the Protestant Reformation toward an alchemical completion. They felt that that Luther and and, uh, Huss and these people had only gone so far and that the culmination of throwing off the yoke of the church would be the establishment of an alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. The uh, target then of the attention of Michael Meyer and Johann Andrei and a number of these alchemists became the young Frederick, he's called Frederick the Elector Palatine. Uh, He was a prince of the Northern League in Germany. He ruled in Heidelberg. And Heidelberg, as you know, is a thousand-year-old university city. And I believe I mentioned that the alchemical press of Theodore de Bray was operating out of Heidelberg. Heidelberg became a magnet for all the occult thinking going on in Europe. And all the puffers and alchemists, the gold makers, the philosophers, the charlatans, they all converged on uh, on Heidelberg. And uh, Andrei and Meyer were advisors of the young Frederick, and they steered him, by a series of political manipulations too complex to tell, toward a marriage with the daughter of James I of England, who was named Elizabeth, interestingly enough. So, Frederick the Elector made Elizabeth the son of James of England his wife. Now... Frederick here made a serious miscalculation because he thought that if James would give the hand of his daughter in marriage, that this was his way of blessing this alchemical conspiracy. Actually, what was on James's mind was he was about to give one of his sons in marriage to a Spanish princess of the Habsburg line, a Catholic. In other words, he was playing both sides against each other. He was not giving the green light to an alchemical revolution at all, but um, it was assumed so. Well, then uh, in in 1617, 18, Rudolf, remember Rudolf, the emperor, he finally dies at a very ripe old age. And at that time, the Protestant League, which was made up of these princes, of these small principalities scattered across Germany and Poland, they actually elected the emperor. It was not by right of primogeniture, but by election by the, the what was called the Northern League, this group of princes. Frederick and, uh, yes, Frederick and his uh, alchemical cohorts had done their political groundwork very, very skillfully, and they were able to engineer the election of Frederick to emperor of the empire, and he became Frederick the Elector Palatine of Bohemia, and this set the stage for an episode called uh, The Episode of the Winter King and Queen, one of the great uh, after Nicholas and Pertinelle Flamel this is one of the great romantic stories of alchemy they moved their court from Heidelberg to Prague and, uh, and all the alchemists went with them and they assumed that English armies would support them if there was any squawk from the Habsburgs And uh, the winter of 1618, they ruled there and began to lay the groundwork for the transformation of northern Europe into an alchemical kingdom. The problem was, as I said, the faithlessness and duplicity of James I of England. He did not support them in in spite of the fact that the fate of his daughter hung in the balance. And by May of 1619, the, the local bishop of the Catholic Church was fully aroused and word had been sent to Madrid and the Habsburgs raised an army and lay siege to prague and in in the in the late summer in the midsummer of 1619 the winter king and queen were driven from prague and the city fell to catholic forces The alchemical presses were smashed, and Michael Meyer, who was like the prime minister of this scene, was murdered in an alley of Prague, and the entire alchemical dream went down the drain. Frederick was killed in the siege of the city, and Elizabeth escaped to The Hague, where she lived in exile for many years. Well, until recently, I thought that that was the end of the story. But there is a codex that's very, or a coda, that is uh, amusing, if nothing else. In that Habsburgian army, there was a young soldier of fortune, only 19 years old, still wet behind the ears, knowing nothing, happily soldiering and wenching his way around Europe uh, while he decided what to do with himself. And his name was René Descartes, a Frenchman. And uh, Descartes, uh, in his later years, uh, reminisced about his his period as a soldier in this army. And... uh, I like to think that it was actually Descartes who murdered Meyer. One of my ambitions is to write a play or a novel where these two confront themselves in a back alley of burning Prague and carry on a debate about the future of Europe before Michael Meyer falls to the sword of Descartes. Well, that may be apocryphal, but what is not apocryphal is that this Habsburgian army, having laid siege and destroyed the alchemical kingdom, began to retreat... Across Europe that fall and by mid-September was camped near the town of Ulm in southern Germany now by a strange coincidence Ulm is the birthplace of Einstein some hundreds of years later but on the night of September 16th uh, Descartes had a dream and in this dream an angel appeared to him This is documented by his own hand. And the angel said to Descartes, the conquest of nature is to be achieved through measure and number. And that revelation lay the basis for modern science. René Descartes is the founder of the distinction between the res virens and the res extensa, the founder of modern science, the founder of the scientific method that created the philosophical engines that created the modern world. How many scientists working at their workbenches understand that an angel chartered modern science? It's the alchemical angel which will not die. It returns again and again to guide the destinies of nations and peoples toward an unimaginable conclusion. I mean, that's not the last time that this angelic intervention in the history of science has occurred. Some of you may know the story in the 19th century of Kikule. The German chemist who was struggling with the molecular structure of benzene couldn't get it straight and then had a dream in which he saw the ouroboric snake take its tail in its mouth. And he awoke from that dream with the carbon ring burning in his mind. Well, the carbon ring, the six-sided heptadal state, uh, form of the carbon ring, is the basis for all organic chemistry. So, um, you know, and then I mentioned earlier Faraday and Helmholtz and the rise of, of the electromagnetic field. The point I'm trying to make is that however rational we may assume ourselves to be, however rational we may assume modern science to be, it is all really founded on angelic revelation, demonic intercession, and an extremely mysterious relationship between the human mind and the world of, what science calls inert matter, which from this point of view is revealed to be not inert at all, but alive and pregnant with purpose for mankind. The alchemical, uh, the alchemical kingdom of Frederick the, Frederick the Elector, then there were a series of adumbrations of this kind of thinking. I mean, many of you may know about the the Freemasonry and the many Freemason revolts in Bohemia and Bavaria throughout the 16th and 17th century. Adam Weishaupt and the Illuminati is another effort to do this, and even the Royal Society founded by uh, Newton and uh, Hook and those people was still an effort to redeem science for the spirit. So the alchemical spirit lives on. It never really died. It's just that it has taken peculiar forms in our own day. And I mentioned, I think, last night that when you enter into nuclear chemistry, the most literal dreams of the al- of the of the. Uh, Profane side of alchemy, the transformation of lead into gold has actually been achieved. I mean, it has no economic significance because the instrumentality to do it costs tens of millions of dollars. But nevertheless, yes, lead in our time has been changed into gold. So, um, that's basically what I wanted to say about this. I hope there are questions and, uh, and uh, stuff that we can say about it. Yes, Richard?
0: Well, I'm going <clears> to <throat> take you back to the Monarch manuscript for a minute with...
1: Uh, there was this thing about it it was a liturgical manual for some... Is, is that your opinion of it? Well, this is... Yes, this is kind of a footnote on all of this. You remember I said that D's... Uh, that Kelly's entree to D was that he had a mysterious book. And you can tell from what I've said already D was as big a sucker for books as I am. I mean... And so this book... Kelly's story was that he had gone to sleep in the ruins of a Northumbrian monastery and slept in, a, in an open sepulcher, a crypt of some sort. And when he awoke, he found beneath him two things, a vial of red powder, which he said was... Uh, the transmissing powder the uh, a necessary part to the alchemical opus and a book in an unknown language which he called the gospel of saint dunstable possibly because this monastery had been dedicated to saint dunstable well now arthur d was john d's son and he said that When in his own, he became an alchemist in his own right, and he said that when he was growing up, he recalled that his father spent many hours puzzling over a book, as he put it, all covered with hieroglyphics. And but Dee, who elaborated the angelologic language called Enochian. Uh, never actually wrote or discussed the the book that he had received from Kelly. It is definitely not written in Enochian. Enochian, when grammatically analyzed by computers, has a curious relationship to uh, 16th century English. Um, but when Dee and Kelly traveled to Europe, uh, they were talking up Roger Bacon, who was a a, a 14th century English monk who had dabbled in alchemy, and they claimed to have Bacon manuscripts, and um, Rudolf became very interested in this and wanted to obtain some of these Baconian manuscripts. Now, I suspect that what happened was that Dee, by this time, had given up on deciphering the gospel of St. Dunstable and decided that he would palm it off on the emperor as a Bacon manuscript, because he didn't want to give up a real Bacon manuscript because they were too valuable to him. So, for fourteen thousand gold ducats, this thing changed hands, and Kelly and D and Anne were able to pay their bills. And uh, Frederick had, I'm, I'm sorry, Rudolf had immense resources because of his position as Emperor, and he brought his cryptographers and decipherers in to work on this on this gospel of St. Dunstable. And got nowhere. Well, then, uh, when Rudolph died, the, the, a mysterious book was numbered among the uh, artifacts of his estate. And I think we can assume it's this book. And one of the interesting things about this book is it has pages and pages of plant drawings over 150 watercolors of plants, each carefully labeled, captioned, in this unknown language, well, if you know anything about decipherment, this is not what a decipherer dreams of. Because if you have a picture of the thing and the caption, it doesn't take too much smarts to be able to figure out uh, what's going on. Nevertheless, this was completely unhelpful. A third of the manuscript has pseudo-astrological Material. In other words, what look like horoscopes and drawings of stars and stellar shells, but when carefully analyzed, dissolve into meaninglessness, cannot be associated with anything. And then a third of the manuscript shows little naked ladies in what can only be described as elaborate plumbing systems (laughs) and it was not it was thought at one time that these must be drawings of the humors of the body in the liver that these little naked women represented uh, spirits uh, moving inside the human body, or then somebody else's guess was it must uh, show an obscure form of German hydrotherapy. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, the Germans were, if you've ever been to Baden-Baden or Marienbad or these places where people take the waters, well, those places are old, old. And all this stuff is captioned, and there are even tables of contents, which again, you would think, would yield to decipherment. And uh, so when Rudolf died, because of the botanical material in this book, it passed to the court botanist, a man named uh, Marici. And he got nowhere with it. Well then in the early 16th century a great alchemist and polymath some of whose art we'll see this evening was Heinrich Kundrath and Heinrich Kundrath was fascinated by artificial languages and he heard about the Vonage Manuscript and we have a whole bunch of letters from Kundrath to the uh, keepers of the estate of the emperor trying to Obtain this manuscript, which he finally did obtain. And then at that point, he makes no further mention of it in his diaries, the conclusion being that he too could get nowhere with this thing, that it just defied decipherment. Well, in uh, 1619, at the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War, and that's what I forgot to mention in my earlier discussion, this episode of the Winter King and Queen is one way of debating the the Thirty Years' War. It's usually considered to be the moment when a certain personage was hurled from a third-story window in Prague, and then fighting broke out in the streets. But really, the episode of the of the Winter King and Queen brought the thing to a head. Well, in 1619, to avoid being caught up in the Thirty Years' War, Kundrath decided to take holy orders and become a Jesuit. And so he gave his a library which was compendious to um, the monastery that he joined, which was a monastery in southern Italy. And there this thing sat until 1906 when uh, a New York rare book dealer named Alfred Vonich bought. The entire contents of this monastic library and when he got it all back to New York and cataloged it it was all very predictable 16th century theological and alchemical speculation except here was this book in an unknown language and Vonich kept it throughout his life and then when he died he gave it to Yale And it is to this day at the Benecke Rare Book Room at Yale. Well, in the 1960s, the CIA became interested in it because um, the CIA is in the business of code making and breaking. I mean, this a huge amount of energy goes into this. And if you know anything about the Enigma Project in World War II, You know that vast energies go into the production of unbreakable codes. And so they very uh, systematically sought out all examples of encrypted material throughout history and just lickety-split, deciphered it one after another. And all occult and magical codes known to exist in Europe can be traced back to one person virtually to one person to trithemius bishop of sponheim who was the the great teacher of henry cornelius agrippa
0: you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time now i'm going to have to leave it there for today but i'll play the remaining part of this workshop in my next podcast However, I thought that it may be interesting to take a break right now and re-listen to my podcast number 319, which is also by Terrence and is about the Vonage Manuscript in great detail. But if you don't want to take that side trip right now, don't worry, because, well, next Monday I'll pick up right where we just now left off. You know, as I was listening to this talk with you just now, when Terrence spoke about the long-ago dream of an alchemist revolution... One that would change the world. Well, I thought about the chaotic state of the human condition in all parts of our world today, and that made me think about what Terence said uh, early on in this talk, where he said, "What we would call manic depression, despair, and that chaotic, near psychotic state of unbounded hopelessness, is the precondition then for alchemical work." So, what do you think? Could today's psychedelic renaissance, uh, one that was without doubt catalyzed by our old departed friend Sasha Shulgin, who seemed at times to be more alchemist than chemist, well, is this current resurgence of interest in psychedelic compounds a sign that perhaps alchemy is back and indeed may be on the brink of a new revolution? Well, I'm afraid that you and I will never know the answer to that for sure. But if you and I fulfill our psychedelic destinies, then, well, maybe we will have played our own small part in the birth of a new human civilization. And while that may seem a bit over the top, (laughs) well, the next time that you're in a deep psychedelic state, think about the fact that science may, in fact, be an inferior form of human endeavor when compared with alchemy. After all, uh, the scientist who discovered DNA and the scientist who discovered a way to sequence it, both stated that their insights came while under the influence of LSD. And as we have recently learned, microdosing with psychedelics is now all the rage in Silicon Valley, uh, among other places. As Terence just said, an angel chartered modern science. It's the alchemical angel which will not die. It returns again and again to guide the destinies of nations and people toward an unimaginable conclusion. And then he went on to say, The alchemical spirit lives on. It never really died. It's just that it has taken peculiar forms in our own day. However, uh, I suspect that there are many, many miles to go before that conclusion is at long last reached. And one more thing about today's topic, and that is that if you go to the program notes for today's podcast, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com, you'll see a photo of the experimental device that alchemists called pelicans, and hopefully that'll allow you to not think of birds the next time that Terrence speaks about alchemical pelicans. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but for most of the talks by Terence McKenna that I've podcasted, I've also uh, posted a number of my favorite quotes from the episode, and the reason that I began doing this is so that if you go to our program notes site, you can search for various phrases of Terrence that uh, you once heard but can't remember where they came from, and uh, with luck that'll take you to the podcast that you're looking for. Last week, uh, my wife and I spent an interesting afternoon and evening with one of our fellow Saloners, who everyone on the forums already knows as Dandelion. And uh, Dan told me that when iTunes dropped our feed, and he instead went to our program notes page to stream these podcasts, that he found it uh, helpful to be able to scroll through the program notes at the same time as he was listening to the podcast. So if you are into multitasking, you might want to give this a try yourself. Now, as I said at the beginning of this program, I'd like to say a few words about today's podcasting anniversary for The Salon. It was on March 17, 2005, that I posted my first podcast from here in the Salon. As you may know, for several years before that, I ran a clandestine audio chat room each week for several of my more psychedelically inclined friends, and we called our little website the Psychedelic Salon. Now, since I first was only experimenting with podcast and had no idea that I would still be doing it all these years later, I just used that old URL and uh, called the first few podcasts the same thing, the Psychedelic Salon. By early June, however, I realized that, well, this may be something that I wanted to do for a while longer. And so I went back and added numbers to those first few podcasts and rebuilt the site, which I launched on June 10th, 2005. So I actually have two dates on which I can celebrate the birth of these podcasts if I want to. Now, I realize that uh, having now completed 11 years of doing this show may not seem like that big of a deal, but considering my former track record of uh, sticking to something, uh, well, for me, it's a really big achievement. (laughs) You see, uh, after I graduated from college, I had quite a wide variety of jobs and occupations. After only one semester of law school, I took a break to work as a stuntman in the movies, and uh, that led me to a stint as a naval officer where I served in Vietnam, among other places. Then the GI Bill got me back into law school and I practiced law school in Texas for a while before starting a personal computer company where we designed, built, and sold our own brand of personal computers several years before IBM got into the PC business. After that, I became a motivational speaker and, well, I guess that I should also mention this as well, I became a very successful dealer of MDMA, or Ecstasy, in Dallas, Texas during its wild ride before being declared illegal. After that, I worked as a legal secretary, a technical writer, a corporate geek, and eventually an internet evangelist for what was at the time the nation's largest telephone company. Then, in January of 1999, I attended Terrence McKenna's theo Botany Conference in Palenque, Mexico. And there I met the woman who is now my wife. Six months after attending that conference, I took a leave of absence from my cushy corporate job and moved out here to the coast to try my hand at being a writer. My point is that throughout my entire life, I've tried one thing after another. You know, I was sort of following that old U2 song that goes, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And along the way, I built a net worth of almost $2 million before my 40th birthday. But I, uh, <laughs> I spent my 45th birthday broke and sleeping in my car under a freeway overpass in Tampa, Florida. It's been a really wild ride, but over all that time, I never stuck to anything for even close to 11 years. So here's the point of my story. Just because you haven't found what it is that you're looking for yet, don't quit looking. For the first 50 years of my quest, the World Wide Web didn't even exist, and until about 12 years ago, neither did podcasting, and while I didn't know exactly what it was that I was looking for, I was sure that I would know it if I ever found it. It was during my 63rd year that I came across podcasting, and after dipping my toe in the podcasting waters for a bit, I discovered that at last I had found what it was that I had been looking for. And without you and the rest of our fellow saloners who stop by here each week, I would never have found it. So, thank you very much for joining me here in the psychedelic salon each week. You mean a lot to me. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.